the Greatman's first podcast. This is our Black Lives in Bobsleigh podcast where we want to contribute to the conversation. We've got Lauren Gibbs from USA, uh, a current world champion and Olympic gold medalist. Um, we've got uh, Monty Douglas from the UK, former British 100 meter record holder, Cynthia Pyre from Canada, who is now a pilot, um, and uh, Jimmy Hedger, a former bobsledder turned physiotherapist for Team GB. Oh, so obviously, sound quality-wise, we're limited by Zoom and so yeah. and uh, mm-hmm. having proper microphones. But but yeah. So anyway, let's uh, if you if you're ready, we'll just we'll just dive straight in. So yeah. So don't feel like shit. I need to be hot on it. It's not a live thing. I'll cut it out and you know I'll edit it deliberately to make Monty sound down. But you guys are cool because uh, <laughs> that's, not... that's the, you gonna have your work cut out there. You're not ready. Good luck with that. That's it. Um, Okay, so all right, all right, so I'll get started then. So um, thank you for giving your time for this. So obviously this is for um, uh, the, the Breakman. We wanted to have, you know, Bob Slay's voice hasn't really been loud and proud. So I've seen some governing bodies have been good. They've done, you know, the Blackout Tuesday thing. And I saw USABS seem to do a couple of um, nice uh, stuff they put out there to address and at least not be completely silent on the situation. But, you know, the IBSF has been quiet and Bob Slay as a sport really hasn't said much. And, uh, and lots of sports have been talking about it. And I've seen as like a rugby union one and a lot of guys have been getting involved. So I thought, why not in the spirit of the Breakman platform do it ourselves? So let's uh, have this conversation and see um, and see what we make of it. So I really wanted just to get, um, yeah, your guys' experiences um, in your lives and stuff. So this this really came about as well through through Jimmy, um, former Bob Center extraordinaire and our physio um, who, we, we've been talking a lot and he'd obviously, and I'll let him discuss, uh, describe it all and everything, but it was him really talking about his experiences and us going over this stuff that really then kind of resonated with me thinking like, we need to do something to, to talk about this and give more light to it because it's um, it really, it, you know, goes about saying it matters, right? So, uh, so yeah, so this is Bob Slay's contribution to the conversation. So thank you all very much. Um, I'm gonna pass on to Jimmy, who's gonna go with uh, his sort of background on it. And then we'll literally, I say it's a loose structure. We'll go through you guys' experiences and everything. And then we'll try and put a Bob Slay spin on it, where you guys just talk about, you know, your experiences of sport and good, bad, ugly, whatever. Um, and then we'll round it all up. And yeah, hopefully it'll try to get a nice valuable experience for all. So yeah, Jimmy, I hand over to you, mate. Yeah, so, um... It was, I found it weird this time because, you know, obviously we're all used to kind of seeing racism and I probably get, got to the point where I'd become desensitized to it a lot. And like, I've never really spoken about it with anyone because it's just kind of become like another like part of my like day-to-day life. And then when I saw the George Floyd thing, um, for whatever reason, it just seemed to like trigger a load of old memories, which I'd had in my mind, which I even didn't even know were, were still there. Um, but for whatever reason, it just triggered something within me. And it seemed to have had that effect on like a lot of people globally because I've never seen a worldwide response like we have done um, to what happened with George Floyd. Um, so yeah, it was, I found it a really bizarre couple of weeks where all of a sudden my brain just started reprocessing all these things which um, you know, I kind of remembered from the age of like eight, nine years old and uh, um, brought me back to like childhood all the way up until like, present day so um as like conversations went on i I wrote a little post um just kind of explaining it wasn't like a uh you know guys here feel sorry for me it was just basically stating facts of um my experiences through life um because i had what was quite encouraging was a lot of friends kind of messaged and were like hey have you ever experienced racism and and i was like yeah of course and then gave a couple of examples they were like yeah we never knew that about you um so like, for example, I, I grew up in, I moved to the Cayman Islands in the Caribbean when I was about six months old. 
and lived there till I was 10. And then moved to Spain and growing up in Cayman was cool. Like it was mixed, you never really um, noticed it. As soon as I went to Spain, that's when like my skin color became an issue to other people. Um, so like, I think one of the examples I gave was, I was about 10, 11, and some kid refused to get into the swimming pool with me because he said he didn't want to catch a disease from, you know, because I was black, from my skin color. Um, there's also like a big neo-Nazi following then at the time, like you'd go through the city and see swastikas graffitied around the place and um, guys going around, you know, making Nazi salutes and, and that kind of thing. And um, yeah, it, was, it stemmed from things like to the more blatant racism to things like being told I must be an African drug dealer, being told my father can't be white. So my dad's English, my mum's um, Jamaican. And uh, yeah, they were like, no, you, you can't, there's no way you can be British, you're black. Like you have to be adopted from Africa. And um, you're probably only here in Spain because you're a drug dealer. And you know, once my sister, she, she was out on a walk and she got arrested by the police because they said she was a, um, an African prostitute. Refused to believe she was British because um, of her skin color. Said she had a fake passport and they only released her when my dad came down to the police station to, to prove her wrong, you know. So from a young age, you're witnessing this, you're seeing how people talk about, you know, black, black skin, black people. Back then it was a little bit more extreme in the sense that like over there all we ever saw of black people was what they painted in the media, which was like that of criminals, backwards. Um, you know, they had like a, a chocolate covered raisin, which was a chocolate raisin with big lips, big eyes holding a spear. And that was the image they had of like black people was like, you know, primitive tribal people and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, when I moved back to the UK, university i was like Fuck, it's nice to actually come to a country where there's other black and mixed people um, and it went from like blatant racism to the more subtle side of things and you know i've had hear people asking oh it's like would you say it's racist over here and i say yes yeah, it's, it's definitely here still from what i've experienced like you know being profiled by the police um uh things like you know, I've had a ex-girlfriend be questioned as to how she could possibly be dating um, a black guy. Um, you know, even even recently, I had a, a client. So I'm, I work as a therapist, and after getting to know her for a while, she she said she was scared to come and meet me the first time when she found out I was a big black guy because you know she said it so casually. She was like, "Oh, you know, because you're a big black guy." <laughs> and uh, at the time, I was just kind of like, just kind of like, I guess just. It, half ignored it and half put it to the side because it wasn't anything that shocked me so i put up all those experiences which i didn't really see as a as a big thing because it was just so used to it and then the responses of it like oh shit like we didn't even realize so like you know then i got talking to greg and he was like i never knew or realized the extent of all these things that you guys go through and he wanted to try and um do more than just like putting up a black square and just really understand the the lengths of it um to, to try and understand more of just the, the, the extent of what we classify as racism as opposed to it just being the blatant, um, violent, hate, hatred-filled stuff. And that's how we got here today. We go to, because um, obviously there's a huge, uh, you know, like I say, it is in Britain, it definitely is. So I've got some stories for you guys as well. Monty, you know uh, Linford and that, and I've got more than one story where I was witness to uh, 
complete racism and you know police profiling and stuff like that we were coming back from training when the police did it so uh more than one occasion but go um lauren first because obviously the difference in america as well is pretty stark so we'll set it all off with uh obviously police brutality and you know just how real it is over there for you guys and the story i put out a little while ago with my training group where my coach had said you know uh had warned had my other training partners who were all black saying don't fuck around here because police will shoot you and and that was when i looked at him i was like what, is that how you feel here and he said yeah i don't feel safe in america and that was his experience because being black in america he thought that's that's what he'd get and obviously that for me was very like wow that's not something i'd have to consider and you know such a, <laughs> such a privilege in that right so but anyway Lauren, go ahead whatever you want to say you want to contribute yeah, so it's interesting, you know, just listening uh, to Jimmy, there's so many things that uh, I can relate to in a sense that, like, we all knew racism was a thing. Like, it's, it's just how you grow up as a, as a Black person, whether it's in America or another country. Um, but you, you, like, what this has done is it, it's, re it's made me realize that how much we've normalized um, racism. It's just, it's like, it, it just, it's just a part of our everyday life. And like the things that I do as a, as a black female in the United States, I forget my white friends don't do that. You know, I was running in a neighborhood and when I run in a neighborhood, I make sure that I'm wearing Olympic gear, right? In hopes that if there is somebody in the, the neighborhood who thinks all black people are criminals, the first thing they'll see is that I'm a US Olympian. Uh, and then I take the next step to when people walk by, I make sure to stop and smile and be as friendly as possible. I go out of my way uh, to, to try and be friendly. Uh, and then it's when cars drive by, it's the, the turnaround to make sure that they're not lingering or to make sure that they're not circling back. And then when they do circle back, it's like, are they circling back because they forgot something or are they circling back because they think I'm trying to, to rob somebody? And what's crazy about me is I've been to private school my entire life. Like my parents purposely put me in private school. Um, and my, th my thought is, is like, you can't, uh, you can't impress somebody if they're paying you, right? <laughs> I mean, I guess you, you absolutely can, but I think, you know, they, they wanted to give me the best opportunity um, to not have to deal with some of this stuff. And my brother went to great schools too, but you know, a black man in America, that's a, that's a whole nother ball game. And my brother is six foot four and sorry for the people who don't <laughs> speak in, in feet and in inches like a silly American, but um, you know, he's a big black man and he doesn't play any sports. He's an artist. He is literally the biggest teddy bear you ever meet. And, you know, the number of times he's been pulled over, thrown in jail, or like women have just crossed the street to avoid him uh, is just crazy. And I think that the craziest part for me is I've experienced more racism as an, a U.S. Olympian uh, than before. I remember the first Instagram live that I did. And, and I've been lucky, and I say lucky in, in that most of the racism I've experienced has not been violent. Um, but that was, you know, just from my parents trying to protect me and put me in environments and places where, uh, people were more accepting and understanding. But the first Instagram live I did with Team USA, I got called the N word and I got told that the KKK was going to come after me. 
And, you know, it, it affected me, but I kind of looked at it and I was like, okay, I don't have time for you fools. Uh, but what I thought was really interesting is, you know, my teammates, parents were watching it and it really impacted them. And I think what's happening now in America is black people are like, well, yeah, of course this has been going on. And then white people are like, what the hell? Like, this is, this is a thing. And like the number of conversations I still have to have to explain like, but this isn't your reality, right? And I'm like, no, this is absolutely my reality because to a lot of people, I am the acceptable um, version of what it is to be black, right? I'm educated. Uh, I'm well, quote unquote, well spoken. Um, you know, I hate when people call me whitewashed. You know, that's I'm not whitewashed. I'm just educated. There is no way to speak like a black person. Black people speak in different ways, just like white people speak in different ways. Um, so th that's what I think it is really tough for me is that. I don't, I don't want to be the acceptable version of what it means to be black. Like I want all black people to be the acceptable version of what it means to be black. And, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting to me because people are like, Oh, I'm so tired of the, of the protesting. I'm so tired of hearing about white privilege. I'm so tired of, you know, uh, feeling like a bad person. Well, welcome to the last 500 years of, of, of black history. You know, we're tired of it too. And I feel like it's a simple fix. Stop killing innocent black people. Yeah. No, for sure. I think, uh, again, that's something so, uh, it's so true. So I know with, like, even for myself, like, I knew that, you know, black people were still subject to a lot of racism and everything. I think for a lot of white people and stuff who are sort of aware of that, where they're, their lack of uh, clarity in the situation comes is from their lack of understanding of how pressing it is to actually deal with it. So it's sort of like, oh, no, 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 I know that people definitely perceive people in black people in a, in a negative light and everything. But, you know, if they've got some black friends who will have like in jokes about it, like even me and Jimmy, like we talk about like the differences between black and white, and you make jokes about it in private situations. But that sort of existence, again, is, is very much, it's all kind of, you're kind of just going along. Again, you're never really for white people, they're never really seeing it as, no, this is actually a pressing thing that needs to be addressed and actually can be addressed and can be sorted. It's sort of like, um, yeah, like, it's like any sort of activism, right? Like, even with the climate change and stuff like that, people might be getting fed up with the protests or whatever, but already you're seeing on the news that um, people are like, this guy, was it, was it Rayshard Brooks and the guy who's just been shot? You know, already they are, you know, local authorities or whatever, who, however it works in America, they're already looking to process and, and press charges to this cop who shot him and kicked him when he was down which I didn't know until I uh, saw the news the other day he's now being done but a lot of the reason that that's being expedited is because it's there's so much noise because people are causing so much fuss because there's so much protesting and they, they directly said that is a direct uh, causal link to now him being processed and press charges a lot quicker than than previously so you'd say well it works right and right. also well, go on, exactly go on. and uh, Ahmad Aubrey he was a, a black man that went running in a neighborhood and two white men decided to get in their truck and hunt, basically hunt him down and shoot him. It took 72 days for those people to be arrested. And the only reason they were arrested is because their friend who filmed it released the video because he thought the video would exonerate his friends. And it wasn't until the internet saw the video uh, that, that the authorities did anything about it. And I think for black people in America, you know, there is no acceptable way of being black. 
it's like if we peacefully protest then we disrespect we're disre quote unquote disrespecting our country right if we're talking about kneeling during the national anthem so if we peacefully protest that's not right if we protest in the streets that's not right uh if we go for a run that's not right and what i think really frustrates me about when a black man is killed and you know people get upset about it all i see is people trying to uh sully their character right and talk about whatever they've done well yeah. in our country it is innocent until proven guilty and even if someone is guilty of the crime the punishment shouldn't be death it should be a court appearance and a fair trial and that doesn't happen either right there are countless stories I don't know the guy's names. I refuse to learn it, but there's a white guy that, that killed nine people in a church in North Carolina. They brought him in peacefully and then brought his ass to Burger King before they took him to jail because he was hungry. But you're telling me a man that falls asleep in a Wendy's parking lot because he's been drinking and he knows he shouldn't be driving, can't be escorted home and then a DUI handled later. No one said he ends up dead. Like it's, it's that kind of stuff that is so blatant that for me, I'm just tired of having to argue with people about the fact that it's racism. Like, just own it. I get that a lot of the people that are alive in the United States had nothing to do with creating this system, but we have to be part of creating a fix for it and trying to ignore it and trying to explain it away or trying to make yourself feel better about it is just perpetuating the problem. So what I say is if people are as tired of this as black people are, then let's have real conversations, enact real change, hold the quote unquote bad apples accountable so we don't have to do this again. This should have been fixed after the 1992 Rodney King beating. My mom was working in TV news and for sure they thought it was a slam dunk. There's a bunch of cops beating a black man and they were acquitted. And when my mom interviewed the, the jury, one of the jurors, she said, well, he was resisting arrest. And she goes, well, how was he resisting arrest? Well, they were hitting him and he kept moving. My mom goes, have you ever, you think you could lay there while, while six men beat you with batons? And she yeah. goes, huh, I didn't think about that. You know, so like the narrative is so deep that people in this country don't want to look at themselves and realize they're complicit to a, a racist system that they, they'd rather explain away um, someone's life. And that that's what needs to change. Yeah, for sure. I think that's another thing, like you say, why we shouldn't be quiet because we've all, well, certainly for, for a lot of white people, you know, we, we benefit from the system that has been put in place. Right. So by staying quiet, we're sort of sitting there going, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm actually okay with this because, you know, on some level, because actually my life's okay and I don't have to worry about these things. So yeah, it is incumbent on all of us to, uh, to shout about it. Um, no, that's awesome, Lauren. I, I would go to um, Cynthia because I'm quite interested to hear, like, the say, still North American, but obviously Canada is a vastly different country as well. And what it's been like for you, Cynthia? Uh, yeah. In like, first off, I feel like everything Lauren said is pretty much what I go through in terms of how I interact in the public. Like, going out of my way to make sure that I'm not a perceived threat is a you know daily. Um, mental tasks that I have to do. Like I have to wear my Canada branded gear if I'm going to, um, you know, train outside or if I'm uh, going, let's say grocery shopping, you know, just being aware of my surroundings and, you know, not having a 
you know, rusting bitch face because that may be construed as something else. Um, in the Canadian landscape, the one prevailing thought that I feel like a lot of people have here is that they look to the U.S. and automatically go, well, at least we're not them. And they use that as a shield to stop themselves from having that conversation that racism does exist. Um, it's not as overt as it is in the States. It's um, There are certain instances where it is, though. Um, but I would say it is a more uh, covert and subtle version of racism that we experience here in, in Canada. Um, but again, a lot of people do look to the states and go, well, we're, um, we're better than them. We didn't have, you know, plantation style slavery. So we're, we're automatically, you know, two steps ahead. But a lot of people, and I don't know if this is like by design through the education system, but a lot of people don't realize the racism that has been used to build our country. Um, and it stems from like, you know, how black people were treated, how indigenous people are treated. That's one of our biggest things over here is the indigenous people of Canada are, you know, to this day treated unfairly and it blatant racism, I think for the most part goes towards the indigenous people of Canada. Um, but much like the States, Canada was built on the, on the backs of black people, built on the backs of Asian people, built on the backs of immigrants overall. Um, and it's, it's just frustrating to hear or read more so yeah people explain away um the the way the 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 way people are treated with the way black people are treated um we obviously get inundated with a lot of american media up here and i think again it shields us or shields canadians from having to confront the truth about our nation um and you know a lot of people for some reason are siding with the cops a lot of the time saying that it's justified in how they approach you know suspects and there's always uh like i want to go back to what lauren said where you know it's innocent until proven guilty with the exception of black people it's guilty until proven innocent and even then you spend pretty much the entirety of your life trying to prove your innocence because you're already deemed a you know a guilty suspect or you're already deemed as a bad person simply for the color of your skin personal experiences for me like again a lot of the racism i've felt has been a lot more subtle um you know just comments that have been made or just the way people interact about with me um i don't know if it's because i'm from toronto and i've been desensitized to how i've been treated in toronto but i certainly um experience it or i'm more aware of it when i'm outside of toronto um you know a lot of my teammates don't know about this but i actually dread <laughs> the flight to calgary when i have to uh, centralized for the off season or the preseason because it's so much more blatantly obvious that I am not from Calgary and I don't fit into that mold of what it means to be um, a Canadian um, because the prevailing thought is that a Canadian is a white person and it's not a you know the 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 um, the mantra of Canada is that we're built on multiculturalism and we celebrate it, but we only celebrate it when it benefits us. And it's to, uh, like Canadians celebrate their multiculturalism uh, to basically make fun of the Americans. We're like, oh, look at us, we're not American, we're Canadian. And we celebrate all cultures, but that's the extent of it. They don't really celebrate cultures in my experience. Um, and, you know, going out to Calgary, you know, you notice the clutching of the bag or, you know, um, when I go grocery shopping, 
a lot of people, you see them pressing extra hard on their uh, car remotes to make sure that their doors are locked because in their mind, I'm about to rob them of their car. Um, you know, people have uh, made comments to me where, you know, the, the, that microaggression of, oh, you're so eloquent, you're so well-spoken and that kind of jazz. Um, you know, in, in one of my first jobs that I had in high school, oh, sorry, yeah, during high school was as a grocery store clerk and I worked at the, the pizza section and the manager, for some reason, I had never approached her about this. I had never uh, said anything about this. She was under the assumption that I was a high school dropout. Um, I don't know what gave her that feeling. I don't know what gave her that thought. But uh, when I explained it to her, I was like, I've never once told you that I'm a high school dropout. She was like, oh, I just assumed that, um, well, uh, okay. I'm like, how do I, how do I even process that? And like, uh, it just, for me, it's, it's hard to kind of like process my thoughts on, you know, how I've, uh, been affected by it because again I think I've gotten to a point where I've been so desensitized by all the different interactions that I've had that have all mostly been negative you kind of just I don't want to say ignore it but that's just the best way to to go about it because if I have to spend every single second stopping to be like okay well how do I you know process this like you just get bogged down and I'm not saying that that's the the way to go I think that's just we've been beaten down so much that the only way we can move forward and continue to live our lives as black people is to like brush it aside, which is not the way it should be done. Like the systemic issues within Canada very much mirror the systemic issues within the States. And I can say, and I'm assuming to some extent in the UK that, you know, there is a system in place where if you are black, you already have like two strikes against you and you spend your day fighting to try and get some type of recognition, some type of respect um, that isn't afforded to you for some reason. And it's basically because of the skin, color of your skin. Um, we, even like your name, like one of the more poignant like moments in my life was like having a conversation with my mom. It was like totally off the cuff remark that she made where she said she was glad she gave us English names instead of traditional Ghanaian names because she knew we would have a harder time with either people mispronouncing it or people taking us seriously. And I can't remember how old I was. I think it was like in my early teens when I had this conversation and I didn't really think much about it. But looking on it now, it's like, the fact that my mom had to consciously give us English names because she knew the life that we would have would be full of struggle. Like, that's just ridiculous. Like, it, it kind of goes into that system. And it, I, sorry, to go back to it, like, you know, we've seen studies where, you know, you're less likely to get a call back from a job if just you're on your, from your resume, if your name is not an English name or a pronounceable name. Like, that is just a little bit of like the iceberg that is, you know, systemic racism um i mean i could go on for on for a long time and i feel like i'm rambling at this point but it's just it's definitely a lot more subtle here in canada and i know for from having interactions with my teammates like my black teammates and having talked to them about it you know they can give you you know so many more examples of how they've felt it in their respective parts of canada and how you know it feels like commenting on it with our white teammates it feels like it's um it's just like pulling teeth to get people that you interact with on a daily basis on your team to convince them that 
you know, you are a victim of racism, or I should say victim of racism, but you have experienced racism. Um, and the fact that you have to convince them, they don't take you at your word that you have experienced this. They have to basically be like, well, I haven't seen it myself. I haven't experienced it myself, so it doesn't exist. I think that's the overarching issue right now is the fact that we as Black people are not taken at our word for the experiences that we have witnessed and that our community as a whole has witnessed and been a part um, have experienced. Yeah, totally. No, I totally get that. And, and that's another... Um... Another thing as well, there was a story I forgot about actually, but it actually what you were saying just reminded me, in one of my first training groups when I came to the sport, uh, there was a rugby player I trained with um, who uh, was a black guy who was at university at St Mary's, I think, in Twickenham. And anyway, he'd arrived at training late and was really flustered, really upset and everything. My coach was talking to him and, he, and she said, look, just go home, you don't, don't train today, like you're obviously just upset, like this is horrible, what's happened, la la la. I went up the stadium steps to go and chat to him. I said, well, what happened? And he said, uh, basically, he got roughed up by the police because they'd said that he matched the description of somebody who committed a crime in the area. And he said, and I was like, that's terrible. Like, what happened? Did they, you know, did, did they apologize? Did they say, he went, no. What they'd done is they completely roughed him up, accused him of the crime and everything. And when they realized it wasn't him, uh, it was someone else who literally looked nothing like him, wasn't even wearing the same clothes, um, it was just a black guy. And he said, and because he was he was crying, like this is a big grown man, like crying because of what he'd been put through because he was so scared. Because he was thinking, I'm a student and this is his reputation and all these sorts of things. And he's a sportsman. Um, and he said that at the end of it, they didn't even say sorry. They didn't even go, we are, we've completely screwed up. We're so sorry. Da, 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 da. They just went, okay, go on your way and turn their backs. Yeah. And he was then expected to get back to university and then get to training. Hence why he was late. I, I, oh, it was awful. It's, it's ridiculous because I know that the policing system is very much messed up here in Toronto. I can only speak to Toronto because I, that's the you know, jurisdiction that I'm in. Um, I have heard stories about the RCMP, which is like our national uh police force but for the longest time in toronto we had something called carding um and it basically was a system that was in place where if you looked suspicious like literally was you know you look like you fit the crime or you look like you're you know you fall into the demographic of what they think a, uh, a certain crime criminal would be the police would stop you take your information you're not being arrested you're not being taken into you know the police sta station they're just taking your information and they put it in a database and for the longest time politicians here in ontario and in toronto try to justify that saying well you know we're we're just trying to be proactive in in stopping crime and when they initially announced this carding system they were like oh no no you know it's gonna it could be anybody if anyone looks suspicious then we will stop them but it's like how do you deem who is suspicious what is suspicious and it all falls back onto you know basically this codified word with like when you think of suspicious or when you think of the word thug an image pops up in a lot of people's heads and for some and for the most the majority of people it's a black person and it's not you know i i, I don't want to be cynical but i feel like it's by design um but again, once they started doing all the, uh, the research and they started pulling all the data and then in terms of the amount of people that were being stopped under this carding system, the overwhelming majority of them were black people. Some people who had never had, like, and of the overwhelming majority of black people that were stopped, and even overwhelming majority of those black people had never had 
any interaction with the police, had never committed any crime, not so much as a speeding ticket or a parking infraction, but because of the fact that they looked suspicious, code looked black, and were in the wrong part of town, they got their carding or they got their ID put down in a database. And it took so long to finally get that system taken out of place, but you still hear rumblings of it still going on now in Toronto where it's like people are stopped because they look suspicious and their information is taken down and put into a database. Like it's, it's ridiculous the amount of people that try to defend it both, you know, on a civil level in terms of like local citizens and, you know, politicians because they believe that they were trying to stop crime because in their mind, crime is only committed by black people even though the, the statistics show that that's not the case. And I think, you know, that again, goes part into the whole systemic issue of, of the systemic racism that we face here in Canada and, and across the world is like, we are already deemed a criminal, no matter what we do. You could be the most educated, most eloquent person. And like Lauren said, that shouldn't be the case. You shouldn't have to act a certain way um, because that will somehow like solve your issues in terms of having an interact a negative interaction with the general public. All black people are acceptable. There's no such thing as a respectable black person or a not respectable black person. Just like there isn't a respectable white person or a not respectable white person. There's just white people. There's just black people. And the way you interact with that individual person should dictate how you interact with that individual person. But it shouldn't be like this monolith of all black people are the same and this is how you treat them. Yeah, totally. You know what? I think as well, it's, you made that point about the fact that people need to just take your word for it. Like you're saying, you've experienced it like you have and everything. And that's kind of the key thing, I think, with all this stuff, giving rise and voice to it all. Even if people don't agree with you, and if a white person listens to this and goes, well, I don't agree with that. I don't, when I hear thug, I don't think black person. Kind of like, that's kind of irrelevant. The fact is, this stuff does happen. And the fact is, these are your experiences. This is lived and it's not okay. And so whether they like hearing it or not, they need to, to, again, the whole thing's about pushing society a little bit further forward, right? That's really exciting, uh, really exciting, really interesting hearing about Canada and that side of things. Um, I'm going to go quickly to Monty now and then, then I'll unmute and then we'll just go for it basically because uh, obviously Monty's British experience is, uh, is, is the last one sort of, or the second one in the Commonwealth there. And that's part of the problem as well, right? Imperialism and all that stuff. But uh, that's another whole rabbit hole. Um, right, go on, Monty. I'll shut up. There we go. I'm muted. Um, that's funny. You're right. It is that is the problem? But um, you're just saying like Simi just mentioning about you know sus being suspicious, and I'm like, do you remember who else was suspicious? Trayvon Martin was suspicious, and you know you get hunted down, and it's it's just so painful to hear about the experiences of people that live their normal lives. Like it's so like you keep saying it's so normalized and desensitized to us as people. Like everything that's going on now. No, no, my, my two pence is that we obviously need the conversation to keep, keep going because it's so important because it's never really been listened to before and a lot of that is to do with perception and perspective it doesn't live racism doesn't live in a lot of people's lives it, it's just not a thing you don't have to consider the same things as you would um my experiences as a british born black female in the 80s and i'm second generation so my parents are both born british people they're both born here it was my grandparents that had come over so they experienced things beyond that even i would experience i mean i had literally had a conversation with my dad yesterday and he mentioned a story to me about you know we we're talking about a range of things and he talks about his lifestyle as, as a youth 
he's around, I was raised in South London, in literally the gangs there are called, you know, the ghetto boys. That, that was my life. And my parents deliberately, just like, I think, like, Lauren, they didn't want me to go to a different school. I literally went and got into the worst school in South London, not because of my stuff. I was always really academic, toxins and everything in secondary school. And mom was like, categorically, you're not going there because she didn't want me to become the statistic that people assume. And she didn't want me to be treated the way that she believed I should be treated. And so I you know, traveled an hour and a half to a predominantly white school to travel. And those were my earliest experiences of racism because although I went to school, you know, I came, I came back an hour and a half to the people that I knew. Everyone spoke like me, looked like me, dressed like me where I was from. And then going into that environment was the first time that suddenly I am actually they don't look like me and it was really apparent that like it's a subtle racism that you get it, you know it's not the outlandish walking around with a white hat on pointy white hat on saying you know with certain flags on we, that's not the kind of racism we're talking about we're talking about when you tell me and I talk to you with some sense about yourself I don't want you to tell me how eloquently I put that because to me I know why you're saying that you're saying that because I'm a black girl with blonde braids and you're wondering why does this South London chick how can she talk like that and I talk about that because, like Lauren was saying, I'm educated. Like, I went and got, deliberately went and got two degrees just because I can. Because as a black woman from South London, we don't do that. I, we don't do that. I spoke to a friend of mine the other day, um, a foreign friend, a white male friend from Europe. And he was playing golf or doing something. And I was saying, oh, golf fancy with his dad, cool, cool, chill. And then it was just like, oh, do I ever not play golf or stuff? And I, and I literally messaged and I said, little black girls from South London don't play golf and he looked at me well he spoke to me and was like what are you talking about what like you can't say that surely you can't say that. okay maybe you haven't seen it before but no that's like dismissed it completely what I was saying and I'm like no little black girls from South London do not play golf and it made me realize that he had no perception of what I was talking about he had no clue what I meant in the sense that your world is completely different to mine like when you are raised by your family, like my, my parents and my mum to say to me constantly, you have to work 10 times harder. Like that was ringing in my ears until even yesterday. Like I literally was told that my whole life, which is why we're not adverse to hard work. Like you can throw anything at me. It doesn't matter because I'm already here. I'm going to do it anyway. And they didn't raise us to then sit down and, uh, and be quiet. We have to, we have to speak. But we have been so just suppressed to the point where the conversations around the dinner table in a white family are very different to conversations in a black family. I was literally just came off a meeting for an hour talking about racism and, and the, different, the different facets to it. Because there are things like the way we've been brought up, the way we, we have been told to behave in, in public and why not we're doing how we're perceived. And there are also like the parts of the confidence in yourself that you don't get told. So if you're at a white table talking to younger and you're telling you're going to be CEO, you're going to be director, you are going to be in boardrooms. You are going, they're going to listen to you. Like a little white boy, they're going to listen to you. When you're not, like, when you're a little black boy at a table, they're saying to you, do not make yourself known. Don't make sure anyone, don't draw attention to yourself. Make sure you stand. You've got to behave in certain ways just to be accepted. Like how ridiculous is that? And I was saying to you, I diverted saying, I spoke to my dad and he was saying how when he used to play football with his friends and he'd go around, they'd go around to the park and one of his friends was designate, designated to just run around, check around the corner, pop his around the corner, come back to the group. And then every so often he had to do the same thing, run around, put his around the corner. And he said, the reason why we did that was because the NF, the National Fund, 
they would just come round to cause trouble and break up the boys playing football. And he had to, they had to put a lookout on just so they could do physical activity. Like just so they could run around and play football as a group because they were tar targeted racism. And they were, my, my parents were born in, in Britain, born and raised in South London. They had that experience that they, every day they were fighting. A nation of people, a community of people that fight every day, it's draining. Like people are tired. It's exhausting that we can't be who we want to be. I should be able to talk to someone exactly who I want to talk to. And we'll, you know, we're going to talk about Bob's Day in a second because there are, there are so many things that get entwined with when you, when you place yourself in what it can be perceived as a white world, which is very much what we live in. Like if you're in, in Africa, living and being there, my African friends that have parents lived there, been and moved over, have said to me, they didn't realise that they were black until they left Africa. Like, that rings so much true. They didn't realise that they were black until they left Africa, because it was never an issue. They were just people living together. And it was only till their blackness was kind of highlighted constantly when they were surrounded by white people that were constantly threatened by them wondering. And the same thing applies to, it doesn't matter if you're male, female, there's so many times that you're seriously perceived as a threat. Me and my friend actually went to, to the Black Lives Matter protest um, and we were on the tube and we were explaining, we were talking to some people that come on the tube and saying, and my friend said it and said, look, we're sitting there and we're two, two black girls. Now we're tall, my friend's like six foot, I'm five ten. She said, we're two, two tall black women. The moment we walk in a room, we are intimidating. Period. I don't even have to open my mouth and people are intimidated. Let alone if I even say anything. Like what Cynthia said, I could be smiling and chipper. It doesn't matter because you already perceive, I don't, you're not really quite sure what's going on. Imagine living your life like that every day. My friend had to literally had, was getting a, a role as one of the managers um, in Selfridges. So really well known, Oxford Street in, in London. Big, big, big organisation, big um, department store. And to get that job, had to consider what weave, the straightest weave she could find, she said, to put on her head, just as she would perceive certain, a certain way. And also, just the way she spoke in the interview, she said, I had to purposely, I talked with my hands, she was like, I talked like this, I had to purposely, consciously tell myself to keep my hands still, because I didn't want to be perceived as that gracious, out, outward-spokenly, passionate black woman because she was in fear that she wouldn't get a job that she has now because of all the of all those things, but she has those things, not because of the value she brings to the job, but because the way she had to suppress her own being just in order to fit in to what society would allow her to be. And there was, it's endless, there's lists and lists of how many times your story could all go on or multiple times about how you faced it. And it, it's like Norman was saying, I'm lucky as well that I have not experienced the violent racism. It, it just hasn't happened and maybe because I'm like you said big black scary girl maybe they don't want it they don't want a piece of me like maybe they maybe they learn it once but, but I'm not experienced the violence <laughs> I'm not experienced the violence that people have you know and, and that's almost like a blessing in disguise because imagine you having to be in a position where you're literally fighting for your life and your life is not worth any value and that's what we're talking about here we're talking about the value of black people's lives this is not about whether they deserve to get an education or whether we deserve to walk down the street. I, like you said, can I walk down the street, even me, with a black, with all black on and a hoodie on? Category, no. As soon as I'm running, it looks like I stole something. Like, literally, it, look, you can see people looking, staring, what's, they, they get jittery around you. 
And that, you know, that's not just that meant they get jittery around you just being who you are. Every day, constantly, you constantly have to check yourself, how you're speaking, how you're perceived, how you look. What does my face say? What is my hair like? Do they understand what I'm saying? Can I be the truest form of myself without being judged in a negative way where I feel that my life is going to be at, at danger? Because the issue then becomes not with white people that are outward racists. Like there's a woman online is outwardly racist right now going, black people burning flags, I'm going to do it. Like outwardly racist. Okay, we know those ones because she's shouting it. But how about the ones that like Cynthia says, you say, oh, wow, you, you know, you said that so eloquently. What? I, I'm sitting in my car, in my own car, pulled up to somewhere. Why are, you just, why are you sitting in the car just looking shady? I'm sitting in the car that I paid for, sitting in my car with my engine on. Why is it shady? That, and I realised it's shady because I'm black. Because if I was a white woman, you wouldn't have said to me, you're looking shady. You wouldn't have. And the reason why you said that to me is because I'm black. And you don't have to tell me that, but I already know. It, it's inferred by how you treat me. And the way that we are treated on a consistent basis, onward, and it's just continually, like, it gets tiring. You just don't bother anymore. You're like, I can't be bothered to defend myself. I've been fighting since birth <laughs> to be just myself. And I fight education, like, we're, edu we're all educated. We fight on there, that's not good enough. We fight as, uh, as athletes, that's not good enough because it's not enough. You fight to get maybe some reward for some it's not good enough because you don't fit the picture like do you know what i mean like you don't fit what it looks like well, it's good that you're good but would rather you be white it, it would be better because you, especially if you're british because i heard you know there's no black people in britain some of my counterparts didn't realize that until i opened my mouth and they were really confused by like like they were like what you're from you're from britain yeah, there's black people and there's loads of us here <laughs> there's loads of us here but if they never saw it it doesn't exist if you never had to have the conversations about looking after yourself the way you're perceived it doesn't exist and the issue is having the value of your of your truth can i say to you this is a real thing this happens every single day of our lives and that is no exaggeration and the moment we can are considered an exaggeration that is why we are not heard if it's taken for face value and you listen to the words that we're saying about growing up and how you have to act a certain way you have to be better like why do i have to be 10 times better just to get the same thing it's not what we're talking about the, we're talking about equal we're talking about basic we don't want to be the same we, we actually just want to be considered like can i just be considered as a human being because the fact that you can lean on someone's neck for that period of time you don't want it to come tell me what they did and what they didn't do as a criminal when did it become okay though for you to treat human beings like that like why is it okay why are you okay with a human being acting that if there was a white pedophile outwardly assaulting a little white boy for example and a white male and someone videoed it and it was right there in the internet there'll be outrage because you can see it happening it's wrong we don't want to see that i wouldn't go oh well, i'm not a white male something to do with me that, that's not my child because that's a white boy he, he's targeting white children that's something to do. that's not my problem it's everyone's problem it's not a black or white issue this is everyone against what is right and what is wrong yeah, I mean that's you know that definitely that last bit really well put because that that is that is um, such a thinking that you know like you say little black boys around the table at dinner are having to expend extra effort and energy just to be perceived normally or whatever just so that they're not at that immediate disadvantage to then the overall disadvantage they're at anyway 
So the fact that they've mm-hmm. kind of perceived it more, and, and Jimmy made a really good point in this, I'm sure you'll tell, I don't need to put words in his mouth for him, but that whole, you're, you know, you're a white black guy. Well, what quantifies me being white? Like, how does, yeah. if you said that this is a microaggression for somebody to say, oh, you're really eloquent. I don't think that's a microaggression. I think that's incredibly insulting. Just be sitting there and say, say that it's a white characteristic to be well-spoken. Fuck you. I, I, I don't think that's micro at all. I think that's actually really aggressive. But, um, but Jimmy, go on, mate. And then, because then we'll, so Jim, if you jump in, and then, uh, and yeah, then we'll start putting this down in general bobsleigh terms and then experiences in that regard. And then just, and then let's just keep going and just talk. Go ahead, Jimmy. You're muted, mate. I'll say, if, I mean, if, there's no, if no one's got like crazy background noise, then just everyone unmute and then everyone can weigh in as and when. Hello? Yeah, yeah. Can you hear me now? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, that was uh, the well-spoken thing. You know, some, some, sometimes it's obviously been said with like no malice in their, in their tone or what they're saying. But so, you know, I, think, I can't remember who said it. I think it was Cynthia saying, you know, why can't we just judge person, people on um, a person-by-person basis, which is kind of what I live by anyways, because, you know, growing up being half black, half white, whatever, I never really identified as a race, but obviously I was put into the box of being, you know, a black person, and then that came with all the associated stereotypes. But, um, like, the, um, the bit there about being well-spoken, someone saying that to me, I'm like, well, it's, even though they're, they're, there's no malice in what they say, it's more of a reflection of just how deeply ingrained this image of what, you know, what they would expect or not expect a black person to, to, to be like. And, um, and it was something that always annoyed me, but, you know, I'd obviously kind of never thought about bringing it up or having a chat with them because, again, what Cynthia said there is just like, you don't want to constantly be um, bringing it up and like pointing it out to people, especially when the people around us are generally good people and um, you know good intentions and stuff like me preaching to you like being like Greg like did you see that person just basically say that they were surprised because I you know I sounded eloquent and, and, and well educated like you and I would make fun of the fact that of just how stupid that, that, that thought process is it's just a reflection of like years of like media and education and all these stereotypes that people brought up um, what I found interesting now, like hearing Cynthia's and um, Lauren's stories, and I spoke to myself before this, you know, the fact that, like, I, I don't think I've ever had a chat with Cynthia before, and I definitely haven't spoken to Montello or Lauren about these kind of things. And, um, and it's just amazing just how every black and mixed race person I've spoken to, regardless of where we grew up, when we grew up, we've all gone through the same kind of experiences or, or processes. So, like, um, what Lauren said about running an Olympic kit. And Cynthia going out in her, her Canada kit, like I've actually, again, I, I never really thought about this before, but um, or you know, bringing it up. But I've, when traveling to certain parts of Europe, if I've been on my own, I've been like, right, I'm making sure I'm wearing like a great Britain top because I don't want to potentially be seen as like you know what people register as a threat or as a certain stereotype. So if I wear my great Britain kit, it'll kind of be like, well, at least they can see that I'm an athlete. Generally, you think, okay, well, they don't need to, to, to raise any kind of alarm. Um, and like, you know, the, the carting thing in, in Canada, like we had stop and search over here, and the amount of times I've been told that I fitted the description um, is mad. And, 
you know, if you're acting suspicious, it's like we're not exactly tiptoeing around with like a freaking mask across our face. You know, it's like we're walking along like a normal person. And I mean, I'm, I'm like a geek. You know, I just freaking walk around in sports kit all the time. Like, you know, wear my glasses. Like, I look like the least threatening person. Like, the other part from, you know, being in the category of being like a, a big black guy. Um, and I remember once my, my father and I went camping and he's white. Uh, I was about 14, 13, 14 at the time. And uh, some other campers called the police on us because they said it was suspicious to have a white man with a young black boy. And they thought I was like a French kid for some reason. Um, but they were like, yeah, this, this middle-aged white man with a, with a young black French boy, and we don't think it looks right. So the police came into our tent at like midnight and, and uh, took us down to the police station. And I was sat in the back of the car like going, Dad, what have you done? Like, what have you done, Dad? And obviously the police were like really apologetic about it and realized straight away that it was wrong. But it was the fact that we couldn't even just go camping without, you know, receiving some kind of, you know, situation like that just because of these stereotypes that have been, been made. And, like your friend who the rugby player who got stopped um, for fitting a description um i actually got called a monkey once at st mary's in a, in a rugby match <laughs> under a high ball someone on the side of the pitch was like oh is the, the monkey going to catch the ball um i did uh, ran past the whole team to score a try but like he's he's uh he was not just scared he would have been frustrated uh so like um so infuriating when there's literally nothing you can do about it like who do you go and complain to because if you went and complain to the police we just get brushed to the side and my 12 year old nephew he's also a geek and he got roughed up by the police once for looking suspicious and fitting a, a description um and then one point i just want to make as well is uh you know like what, what i've found very strange is there seems to be like quite a lot of backlash against the black lives matters tag or trying to say you know let's 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 um they stand up for black people or get make black people matter and all of a sudden things come in like all lives matter or this matters and that matters and it's like yeah that's not the point the point is it's either you're against racism or you're a racist like this is literally let's just try and stop racism recognize the fact that there is a lot of history of racism against black people and there still is to this day why not try and understand how far this stems like my parents like you know i recently learned that um uh, it was illegal to go to school if you're black in the states until i think it was like 1957 and this was when my parents were around like they were going to school they were like 10 11 years old at the time and um and, and the fact that, that that was a very real recent thing um that they would have been going through and yeah and and i think the whole point that seems to be getting missed and twisted is like they're now suddenly focusing on oh well everybody matters it's not just black people. It's like we're not trying to get special treatment. We just want racism gone. That's it. And um, you know, and then like over here, they've started kicking off about the statues of old slave owners. And it's like, well, why are you getting more offended by a statue? It's not erasing history. We don't want to erase history. We want to learn more about history. We want people to understand the history more, rather than saying let's wipe out history by taking down a statue. How about you know the people who want to take the statues? Like honestly, I don't really give a shit about a statue because. I've never really spent a day in my life wondering, oh, I wonder how like that statue in London's doing at the moment. Like, I've never made a point of going out to see a statue, but I know about the history because we get taught the history. So as long as we get taught the history, that should that should be the thing that matters. And um, and it's just so bizarre to me, like seeing the things that people are choosing to focus on, and a lot of it's driven by the media. 
Um, but it's like, why are we focusing now on a statue? Why are you focusing on the fact that, yes, um, other races get killed by the police as well, or yes, there's a lot of, um, you know, crimes that happen in, 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 in certain places. It's like, well, can we stop focusing on all these little distractions and excuses around the topic, which is, let's just freaking finally nip racism in the butt. Um, that's my main points were, again, just from, from it's, it's interesting just seeing how similar our experiences and like the thought processes that go through our mind are, um, you know, like, again, you know, Lauren worrying about not looking suspicious and, you know, I might walk out of a shop and every time I walk out of a shop, I think, oh shit, like I hope the alarm doesn't go off because it's going to look suspicious, it's going to look bad. And that's been drilled into me from a young age where my mum would say, don't touch anything in the shop unless you're going to buy it. And being followed around in supermarkets as well, you see it followed around all the time by security guards or by shop owners and all that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, it's like little things like that where you're just always thinking, oh yeah, I better, better just not do that here. And just so ingrained that I never really thought, oh yeah, Greg, do you know about this? Because it's not something you would have ever thought about and I never would have thought that you would think about it either. It was just normal. I think the thing that like really breaks my heart is uh, it's so ingrained in our culture that kids grow up hating themselves. You know, that's mm -hmm. the hard part. I don't know if you guys have seen the doll test where they have a white doll and a black doll and they say, you know, which doll is bad or which doll yeah. is pretty or which doll is ugly and watch little black children point at the black doll and go, that, that doll's bad. That, that doll's uh, ugly. Um, I think is the, the part that breaks my heart because I know who I am and anybody who knows me knows I know who I am. You can call me whatever you want. If you want to hate me because I'm loud, you want to hate me because, you know, I'm big, you want to hate me because I'm black, you want to hate me because I speak my mind. Hate is hate, right? You're not going to hold me back. I'm, I'm going to get done what I need to get done and I'll prove that time and time again. But not every, you shouldn't have to have you shouldn't have to put towards extraordinary effort in order to just live your life and love who you are. Yeah, that's also a really good point as well is, is, is um, you know, the, again, this was a recent thing, like I never really acknowledged, but growing up where I did, all the images around black skin and black people was a really negative one to the point where I actually kind of wished I wasn't as dark as I was. And it's like, as a kid, that's not something you should really, um, really be growing up with and and I only found out recently that my nephew growing up over here uh he's like what 15 years younger than me or something uh, he used to try and gel his hair to make it look more white to to fit in and to just kind of like not be proud of his his, his features um and like again and, and another thing is this whole movement of sharing experiences isn't intended to be like oh feel sorry for me it's a uh, here is what is happening. This is just what's happening. Make of it what you want. But, you know, we're not being held back because, you know, I got to a stage where when I'd see stuff or I'd see a racist person, I'd just be thinking, well, you're just an idiot. Like, um, you know, because oh, sorry, obviously I'm not like getting beaten up or anything, but when I come across these ignorant stuff, I'm just like, I must feel sorry for them for being so ignorant. Um, and uh, yeah, but like that, that kid example that you said of the doll, it's true. It's, we see these things from, they might not be necessarily aware of it, but we see it. We'd be like, oh, that person who's being described as ugly, or that person who's being described as a thief, or that person who's being described as, um, you know, a, a, as a criminal, all look like me. And that's what we see growing up as a, as a, as a child in, in that system and how things are currently set up. Mm. Well, this is, we, because um, again, I, meant, I gave you this story the other day, didn't I, where I, I said, like, it would be great if we could potentially get to a, uh, a situation where 
an off the cuff racist comment would be the sort of response that I'd have to it, which is just like, oh, that's ridiculous, and laugh it off because that's my privilege that I've not had it, you know, endemic in my life, and it's not been a part of my history of my race and of my family and of my, you know, there's no deeper root thing to it. So I can laugh it off. It'd be great to get to that in however long, um, which hopefully will come back to you. But it was that time where so uh, Monty, you know, knew him uh, in the track. So I ran my 60 meter PB there back in 2013 or something. It's a quick track. Um, and, uh, I was the, and I was the, I was the only white guy in the race. And I was there with my friend who was a white girl. And she was, um, so my mate was in the audience watching. So she was around um, and knew him as, you know, actually pretty much for the entire meet. I think we might've actually been the only two white people in there. So it was all, all black people. And I was the only white guy in this race. And uh, and uh, and they were all talking. So I was racing against Ryan Scott and uh, a couple of other guys. And uh, apparently, these this family and it was it was a mum as well. She was like shouting, going, "Oh, you know, Ryan Scott's in this race. He's going to win. He's going to win." And there were two full starts. It took forever to get going. And then when it went, I won. And I ran like six sixty something and won by about you know about three meters or something. And the woman turned around to all her friends, went, "Oh, the white guy won. He must be on drugs." And uh, and my mate was standing there, like, I'm like, obviously, this is obviously my mate. I'm with this guy, and she told me this afterwards. And she said it was really awkward. They like looked at her awkwardly. She sort of walked away, and I was like, oh, I took. <laughs> I said I was like, I was like, oh, brilliant, yeah, I'm fast, and I beat everyone, and, and they were shocked because I was white. So that was my that is my only to this day my only experience. Of someone trying to take my skin color, and make it, and I don't you know what I mean. No, but in my but it's funny. Sorry, I, <laughs> God, sorry, I don't want to jump in. I just wanted to say it's funny you say that actually because I feel that I spoke to my friend the other day that as athletes, I don't know if you guys let me know. When we were at school, I feel like because I was the black athlete and I was good at athletics, it was acceptable. My blackness was acceptable because oh, but you're cool because you're the athlete, yeah. so you don't really get treated the same and. I think you're different was, than the other black people right we're acceptable i don't know what that is but it's kind of like oh you're doing your part so you good kind of thing um but i, I really did feel that and i think the class versus racism conversation is something that we really do have to think about because there is an issue around class and racism they're not the same thing and we do get we get both because we get looked at from where class level and skin color but however there is an element of them considered if you are in say music industry someone like for example Stormzy or someone who is in the sport is in sporting industry who has high athlete or influence they're going to be perceived differently I mean, my coach said the other day really funny I said you know if I'm sitting in the petrol station and I pull up in my car and this little white lady puts like closes her door I'm looking at her like okay he said but if I'm pulling up in my Range Rover and she's locking the door I'm looking at she and she's looking about in an, in an old banger I'm looking at her like really like really like, like really because it's then not about racism we're talking about then class which can be really really confused but that was definitely my experience in school like the black athlete in a conversation and how your blackness is accepted in my opinion but go on can you say that oh my bad um, because there was an article that Team USA literally just put out where they interviewed a bunch of black athletes and they all pretty much said the same thing. They felt that because of the fact that they were athletes, that 
in certain um, experiences, they were kind of seen as better than than other black people. Oh, you're the good black. Like that respectability politics rears its ugly head because you are providing a service of some sort where it's like you're here to entertain and you're only good to us to entertain. But outside of that, if you don't fall into that realm, you're like, okay, you're one of the black, bad black people. And I feel like that is. Uh, for some reason that's the like it permeates through all the different countries like i know black people aren't a monolith i know the experiences in in canada are not the same as experiences in the u.s and in the uk but for some reason that's like the one thing that ties us all together is like we're black athletes so we are perceived as better for some reason yeah it's uh you put things, things really well cynthia and and but even though what you said there we've got different experiences like you can't talk for how things are over here or how they were in Spain but we've actually all got really similar experiences that every time I speak to someone it's like yeah I can really relate to that um and like what Greg was saying there about the race you know we, we were having a chat the other day and um you know like how certain things are you uh, as black people you're expected to be more athletic expected to be able to dance expected to be able to you know um sing or whatever and it's like I almost felt like if I went to somewhere say if I was playing basketball or whatever, I didn't want to turn up under this expectation of being able to be like one of the most athletic people there and then be shit. So I was like, I almost had like a, a bit of extra pressure, which probably pushed me on to being you know, better than I was because I didn't want to be, oh, here comes a fast athletic black guy and then just be the worst guy on the team. And um, Greg was saying, you know, like one of the stereotypes is imagine being a black guy with a tiny penis. <laughs> For them, it just it must, be, must be pretty peak. Um, but yeah, it's like, it's just one of those things where it's just like, you cut that again, one. it's just a, what's that? Yeah, cut that one out. <laughs> I said keep it. <laughs> and, it's, um, and it's just one of those, again, it's just like, well, it did help, I suppose, in that one sense of like, you know, ironically, like having to work hard, it still, it instilled hard, like a hard work ethic into us and having to, for me anyways, like thinking I don't want to turn up and not, you know, kind of almost meet that expectation because it would have been even more embarrassing or like being looked down even more in a negative light then um i was like well i'm going to make sure i am like you know the most athletic person here or whatever like that monkey incident i was like well if i'd heard it um i would have tried to make the point of you know obviously i can catch the ball and then i'm going to go and you know, score against your team um and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, that's just another aspect which I hadn't really considered until recently when I was running over things in my mind. When you said that about um, having to be the most athletic person in the room, I was like brought back to high school where like every parent want me to play the sport that their kid played. And now I'm like, shoot, they just thought I was a good athlete. Like they just thought I could play that sport. <laughs> I would love to get to a point where someone can ask me to do something or ask me a question and I don't have to think are you asking me this because of the color of my skin and don't get me wrong I want you to see my blackness because my skin is beautiful my culture is amazing our music our, yeah. food, our hair our clothing I want you to I, I, I don't want people to be like I don't see color really oh. um I want to see all the colors you know but uh, I just want to get to a point where we appreciate them and we realize our differences is what makes us uh, special and which allows us to grow instead of it being seen as a threat or a danger to society. Yeah. It's kind of funny that you say that, um, that I don't see color because I think I've heard that more in bobsleigh than any other aspect of my life. Like having to... Yeah, bobsleigh, go. 
Yeah, having to tell your teammates, because again, bobsleigh is a very, very predominantly white sport. There's no denying it. Um, and having to tell your teammates, you know, your experiences and then having them kind of ignore you because they're like, well, I haven't experienced it is ridiculous. Like, I can't even, I could write a book about the number of experience that I've had and my other black teammates have had on our team. And I haven't been on this team for so long. Like, I made the team in 2015, so I'm going into my sixth season now. And you have, you know, like, a, a perfect example for like LaSalle's. LaSalle's has been on the team for, well, he retired after 2018, but he's been in the sport the longest. And he has so many experiences of basically having to uh, justify himself because the, the perception is that he, he's, uh, you know, he's loud, he's brash. That's just the way he is. But the, for some reason that's seen as a negative and not t taken as a positive. Um, the, the term colorblind, I think pisses me off more than anything because again it's used as a shield to block people from having that conversation um in the in a bobsleigh realm though i think like the the first thing that always happens to me and again i don't know what it is with with bobsleigh and and why people feel the need to do this i don't know it's because like i'm that token black person now there are i think like myself and there's like four people on the team that are black now but um for some reason people feel extra comfortable saying a lot of out-of-pocket shit to me um you know maybe they think i'm gonna agree with them i don't know what it is uh i the one the one story that i do want to tell is um it was i think two seasons ago we were in calgary for the world cup and the topic of diversity in media came up at the dinner table and this one particular uh teammate of mine felt that it was unnecessary to include black people in advertising. So in Canada, we have this um, outdoor type store called Mech. It's Mountain Equipment uh, Company, I think it's called, or co-op. And they sell like hiking gear and canoe stuff, all that jazz. So if you're really an outdoorsy type person, that's definitely your demographic. And this uh, teammate of mine felt that because they were seeing an increase of black people in their advertising, it was just to appease to the demographic and not because this person felt that black people actually go hiking and black people, act, you know, are outdoorsy. Um, I forgot the term that this person used, but they were like, you know, it just, it doesn't make any sense because black people don't hike. Black people don't go canoeing or camping. And I remember I spoke, I think it was like, Dexter, I don't know if any of you have met, have you, if you, any of you have met him, but Dexter and I were the ones that were at the table trying to convince this teammate of ours that black people do go camping. We do go hiking. You don't see it because you don't want to see it, or you have created this bias that, you know, you've put black people in a certain box and this is the only box that they can exist in and anything outside of that does not make them black, which moves on to the next point of, you know, this stereotype of what does it mean to be black? I've been told so many times, you're the whitest black person I've ever met you're whitewashed. I'm like, what is that? Why do you feel that I don't fit in this box of what it means to be black? And, you know, why is it that when I speak eloquently, it's considered speaking white? And when I, like, it just, it, it boggles my mind how, you know, my, my blackness is like, it doesn't correlate to them because they see what they see on TV, which is like, you know, girls who snap their neck and, and whatnot. And I don't fall into that stereotype, so I must not be black. But then again, to assume that that stereotype is the only version of black people that can exist is also ridiculous. Um, 
the most, I think, blatant version of, of racism that I've experienced on the team is the, uh, to this day, I can guarantee you, maybe if, they, if this, these particular teammates of mine watch this video, they'll stop doing this nonsense, even though I've told them time and time again, do not do this to me. But when white people go get a tan, and then they come stand up beside me and say, look at me, I'm as dark as you. I, I'm, who's, who's darker, Cynthia or me? Or saying, ooh, girl, how's it going? Yo, how's it going, girl? How you doing? I'm like, I've never spoken to you that way, so why are you speaking to me that way? Um, fried chicken has been told, has been brought up to me, you know, oh, I bet you would like some fried chicken with that. Again, why is this the way you choose to address me and, and speak to me in any capacity? And like, it, it, there are days when I go to practice and I'm just like, so this is how it is, huh? This is really how it is. And I think it's because they get comfortable. I'm like, and maybe uh, like I, I'm partly to blame because I let it slide and I don't call them out on it. And because the times I have called them out on it, it led no, nowhere because a few days later, we're back at this same spot in this conversation again. But I think there needs to be a sense of, I don't know, like, I don't want to say, I don't know how, what I'm like, how to get this across, but it's like, there personal accountability accountability like have personal accountability for the exactly. words that they say and the impact that they have on people and exactly just I agree. think think twice and i i know why you haven't continued to speak up because it's exhausting and the looks you get are so like angry and like yo calm down yeah. just chill I'm out just kidding i'm i'm just, I'm kidding. just joking I'm just no, yeah and like, so yeah it's it's exhausting and so i think that for me is the most important part of what's going on right now is that you know it, it black people have been trying to say this for years whether it be in sport or in life like we're tired of saying it and people aren't listening so we need other people that don't look like us to speak up and they help help us stop it yeah no i agree it's it's ridiculous. Again, I don't want to take up all the time because I know we've all got our her own stories of like the different types of either overt or covert racism that we've experienced on our team. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to open the floor to... To be honest, Cynthia, I think like Wait, can I you can kind of speak on behalf of all of us because everything that you said, yeah. again, we can just... And like, I mean, with us in the British squad, when I was involved, there was actually quite a lot of black... At one point, I think there was way more black people than, than white people in the squad. Mm -hmm. Um, but even still, there were still experiences being being met, um, even you know, like from certain members of staff or whatever. And uh, and I like I never had, I'd say within Bob say like as far as sports go, I actually felt quite you know comfortable in there compared to other sports I've tried or been involved in because um, when I was involved, it was actually quite mixed, and I didn't receive any direct racism. But I do remember one, and I'm just going to share this story real quick. Is this this uh, we had um. Uh, a German mechanic who was talking about one of our athletes who was just incredibly talented, like supernaturally gifted and perfectly speaking for Bob's day. And he said, oh yeah, and this guy, he's just come straight out of the jungle in Africa to pushing a sled and uh, and he's the best person ah. here. And uh, you know, like we just kind of looked around in shock and he said it so like blasé as if no one was going to find it offensive. And again, it's just a reflection of how normal that stereotype and image to those people is that it's just like this is what we mean like how have you got raised to this point where you can just happily say things like that and not even question it or even think about that like you know in terms of discrimination like I'd never you know think of anyone like uh, say like if people are homophobic or whatever I would never would have like, just happily casually spoken really degradingly about like a, a homosexual or anything like that and it's just bizarre that that was so ingrained in him that it 
you know, his surroundings growing up and all that kind of stuff, never even registered in his mind that, that might be offensive to just refer to this guy as like some animal from the, 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 the Congolese jungle that's just come out and, and it's surprisingly good. <laughs> it's just funny what what Sylvia said actually because the back messaged me guys privately and said you snap your neck and I was actually going I actually do I'm actually both of them I'm gonna snap your neck. That was funny. I'm, I can do both, baby. Like, I'll do both. No, but it's funny you said that because it is that it's kind of like why can't you just be you? Like I am both. Like when I'm with, you know when you're with your friends. We will talk certain way because I grew up like, like I'm a Jamaican heritage, so we naturally like my mum would say Wagwan because we're Jamaican. That's how we speak. My, you know, that's how the elders speak. They talk to you a certain way, and it's just culture. Why can't I just be be me? But um, I've actually experienced. It's funny because being in bobsleigh really is the epitome of the cesspool of racism. Like, and it's subtle racism. Sometimes it's outlandish. Like, for the first time coming from a summer school and sprinting, you know, there's a lot, and I'm a sprinter, so. There's black people everywhere it, to, and it wasn't really a face thing like that kind of thing it was more of an institutional thing in terms of the network and and the board leadership boards and politics with selection things like that but with bob's day i remember particularly being um in the middle of the mountain sestriere do you remember our first trip great our first trip on ice house in sestriere i remember being there and being in this top of the mountain it's freezing cold i'm standing here and i was actually with joel joel Fearon. i looked around and i was like Dude, why, why, why are we here? Like, black people, black people ain't here. Like, black people aren't supposed to be here. Like, it's cold. And there's white people everywhere. Like, just everywhere. And it was quite, we were making jokes of it because we were trying to find something relatable between us that where we could, we could survive in that environment. And it's so funny because time after time, I've had little bits where it's kind of like, I've realised that, you're very you're a black person in a white in a, in a white sport because they're kind of like you said bob i've had people have said to people oh no black people don't drive i know drivers have heard that well black people don't drive huh black people don't drive what are you talking about i mean but that's what i've heard and i've i've heard um being on season actually this even this year the whole thing that you said to me about the eloquent thing i got i was spoken to someone and i can say it now because it's gone our, our previous ceo head of everything I'm sitting there and we have discussions about, you know, the culture and everything that's going on. And I literally said, you, you know, do you, you ask my opinion, what do you think about what happened in the meeting? There was a meeting with everyone. I said, do you really want me to tell you? And I said, yes. So I broke it down to him and said, this, 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 and this. And he looked at me like I was a seven pound note. He literally looked at me and was like, oh my gosh, you, you said that so, you said that spoke so eloquently. You put that so eloquently. And I looked at him with my blue curly hair I know why you're saying that because I'm sitting here with blue curly hair. But do not get twisted that I can talk to you with some kind of. I don't understand. He didn't. He didn't understand why I could articulate myself in a manner in which, for him, being a middle class white man in position of power, why I could speak to him in that kind of way. And that's within Bob's Day. I also, even this year, um, <laughs> one of the mechanics actually said to me, actually ridiculously, um, said to me, oh said oh you're a chocolate princess right and no, no joke this is this year 2020 season inside the, the inside the garage and he said to me oh he's German oh you're, you're a chocolate princess so I looked at him like what huh and everyone in there's looking like wow and they're like 
you can't say that. You can't. And I know you don't mean any harm, like Jimmy said beforehand. A lot of it isn't intentional or otherwise. It's not malicious in any way. But it is the subtle, the, the, the prejudgment that they have of where you should behave or you or who you are of why you're saying that. Like you saying to me that I'm a chocolate princess. You really thought that? I'm like, that's not acceptable. Well, to be honest, I mean, even beyond the racism side, it's just incredibly unprofessional that the team mechanics calling you a princess. So, um, so yeah. Uh, the Bob Can I just want to ask one quick question. Okay, good. So, like, with this, because I know our team, we have, like, an athlete council, and I know this topic has been brought up within our team about how to deal with race and racism within the Canadian bobsleigh program. How we're going to address it, I don't know. But, like, have you guys brought up a way of, like, sitting the team together with admin, with coaches, and kind of like having this conversation that we've just had here with them to be like, this is what has gone on in the past, and this is what we need to do to change. Like, has that been a conversation you guys have had with like GB Bobsley? No, because right now, the difference in your program is you've got a coherent program, and we don't. So, what we've got at the moment are crews and pilots siloed in their own sort of uh, existence. So, it's quite actually quite topical because it's all going on right now. But actually, what we do have is more power autonomy than we've ever had really so we could actually amongst ourselves that again a bit like us doing this now for the brakeman we can actually go and do that ourselves uh, i just say like obviously thanks to the break because the brakeman like it gives it gives black essentially this is about black bobsleigh athletes having a voice within bobsleigh and making it a making it aware that this exists and still happens and if we want sports if we want industries in any facet to move on we have to continue the conversation we have to ensure that our, our white counterparts and non-black counterparts are involved in that conversation because essentially like you said they are in a better position of power than we are because that's uh, let's not get it twisted that's why it's getting and so much traction now it's because non-blacks are even more you know on it than we are i went to the black lives matter protest like i said shocked how how many non-blacks were there i mean it was a 50 50 split to be honest you couldn't you couldn't pinpoint a particular demographic group honestly it was a sea of people and it wasn't just blacks with sprinkles of white people putting up their banners it was half and half of everyone saying this is wrong and we would like that same thing within bob state people to say when there is that happening when you are getting stopped constantly like across borders, because whenever I drive, for some reason, we get stopped every single time in that van, <laughs> all the time. It doesn't matter where we're traveling, it could be all over, wherever we are in Europe. Stopped so many times, got stopped on the race day, on the way in Lake Placid to a race, and, and having to fear for my life the first time because the, I'm driving and the officer has got a gun and he's got his hand on his gun, so he's wind the window and, then, and I said to the girls, do not move you put your hands where you can see them and i put my hands on the wheel because i watch tv because we don't do that over here in england but i put my hands down and then just put the thing down so i didn't move and it was only till one of the other girls um who had to go and get an id was in the back and he said where's your id it was in the boot and stuff he was like you need to get your id we need to see someone's id because i didn't have mine with me traced out but i was driving we didn't have hers and um the other she had to go and get the her idea at the back went to get out of the car and he was like man man stop stop went to get his gun and i was like you can't do that because there's a black person driving and you're perceived as a black person you can't do that it doesn't matter what you look like like tell me um jimmy said about being mixed and being half black and half white the society is going to see you in that way so you have to be very careful about how you're how you're perceived for your life but we want the conversation to keep going am i right that 
within our sport that these might the microaggressions, the systemic racism is there and it is prevalent. And we just want everyone to take responsibility because black people in Bob's they can't do it on their own. Like we could, like Cynthia said, she could to the cows come home, tell her teammates that was happening, and they'll be like, Well, I've never seen it, so it doesn't exist. And that is where for me the conversation ends and we want it to keep going. Yeah, that's a really good shout. I think this bonus is quite a nice way to sign off, I think. Um, like I said, this is a first this is a first chat, a first time putting this out there. I mean, I, I just I so I mean if we wrap it up like feet on behalf of the, the, the Breakman, if you like, the the stuff that this this whole platform is designed to try and boost everybody because you know we don't get you know before even the race thing came into it, it was about Great men and women, just as our little minority, you know, that we don't get, you know, that much attention and it goes to the pilots, even if we do get attention, our athletes are incredible um, at the top level and that. So, um, so yeah, I mean, you guys, in, in the same way that people haven't, didn't have to follow the thing, they didn't have to back it or get behind it, but people have, in the same way you guys didn't have to come and do this, um, but you did and you gave your time and that's really important, I think, to keeping the, like you say, keeping the conversation going and for us having our part to say in it. Um, and I say, hopefully this is just the first one of potentially many we do, or maybe that we open a feature on the, um, on the site, which could have, you know, celebrate black success in the, uh, in the sport. Like there's all sorts of things we could do, which I think we should, uh, should workshop and think about. But, um, but yeah, look, I think, thank you very much for coming on this. Thank you for giving your time Cynthia, as well. Thank you. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and hopefully see you in the winter. God knows what's going to happen though. Um, obviously with the pandemic, but but we'll, uh, we'll see. If there's a winner. Yeah. If there's a winner. Yeah. So, so fingers yeah, crossed. Thank you so much for this, man. This is really appreciated. Yeah. And I, I know I, I like DM'd you this when you messaged me about this, but I thank you again for creating a platform for Breakman because when I was a Breakman, I felt the exact same things that you guys are probably feeling right now where it's like you're not under, you guys are underappreciated for the amount mm -hmm. of work that you guys do. Like no pilot can be a six i mean monobob's different which that's a whole different conversation but like um no pilot can be as successful I, like i personally believe you're as successful as your brakeman and if you aren't exalting your brakeman to that highest level that the pilots are getting then what are you in this for like i again i was breaking for kaylee for two years and alicia and christine for a year so i know what it's like to kind of be in the background and the media does play a part in that but i feel like this platform is really is, is like the first step in getting that equal footing between brakemen and pilots and uh, i mean good on you for for doing it and if mm -hmm. you're looking for some help you know on the north american side i have no job right now i am currently unemployed so i will help you um you know i can only collect government benefits for so long but yeah i'll help you in any regard i can so. that's cool hey uh sorry so far everyone who works for the brakemen is also unemployed so uh, <laughs> Um, no, I appreciate that. Like I said, it, it, it will only succeed with people buying with people. Uh, you know, get out of so, yeah, we'll see. Anyway, thank you for your time. Um, and uh, stay safe. All right, see you guys. Take care. See you in a bit. Um,